All right, good morning. Um, great to see you all. It's a pretty good turnout for a long weekend at the beginning of the school holidays, I reckon. Um, I was thinking, I was thinking as, as I saw the announcements that we're looking at, uh, sorry, I've already forgotten what the announcements were. <laughs> no, the announcements were we have the members meeting and we had baptism. And the members meeting is welcoming in people who've gone through Unite course with us. They've, gone, they've come to get to know us and uh, what our values are. And um, it seemed timely because this week I'm preaching on one of our core values, gospel centrality. And then um, it also seemed timely that we're talking about baptism as well because baptism points to the gospel. It's a command that comes out of the gospel. It is a response to the gospel. And really, if you think about the songs that we sang this morning, they seem timely as well because they all point to the gospel. <laughs> and actually, the more I thought about it, I realised if I'm preaching on gospel centrality any week, yeah. everything else about the service should seem timely yeah. because we're always preaching about the gospel. We're always singing because of the gospel and out of the gospel. And everything that we plan around church and in church and for each other is because of the gospel. So at King's Cross, we have three core values that we uh, talk about, we highlight in our uh, members course, which we did last week. We have gathering, growing, and gospel centrality. And um, I got to lead the gospel centrality part last week and was keen to kind of bring it to the rest of us this week because I think every week, even in our sermons, we see the gospel is the center. I hope that is what we see. But sometimes it is good to really focus on it, to really uh, narrow down on what gospel centrality looks like. Because you say that word enough, that phrase enough, gospel centrality, starts to sound kind of meaningless. It starts to sound like a buzzword. What does that even mean? And what it means is the gospel is at, is at the centre of all we do. Um, we want the gospel to be central to every sermon every gathering every week because it's kind of like if you're out in the waves and you don't look back at the beach and you're just bobbing along and enjoying life with your friends eventually you turn around and you realize you're at the next beach <laughs> the current has moved you and you haven't even realized it you don't actually know where you are even though you thought you did yeah. and you're at the next beach if you're lucky if you're unlucky you're out at sea so <laughs> We think it's really good to keep looking back at the beach, to keep looking back at where we are, what's our foundation, where we're from, and why we're here. That's when we're preaching gospel centrality every week, when we're looking at the gospel every week, we're looking at where we should be, and we're looking at why. So, um, to start, what is the gospel? Um, I'm going to read from... I, the, I don't have a slide for it because there's just... There are so many passages that are really helpful for illuminating the gospel, and I just couldn't decide which one to do until this morning. I'm going to read from Philippians 2. I'm reading from the ESV if you want to read along. Philippians 2, let's do from verses... Um, look, let's do 1 to 11. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> Philippians 2, 1 to 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit... Any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I'll pause there. We, we often go to this passage specifically for humility. Oh, wow. Well done. Thank you. I didn't give him a slide for this. This is awesome. Um, 
<laughs> uh, we often go to this passage specifically for humility, but there's so much there, isn't there? And it's all motiv- motivated by the same thing. Um, Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not, not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a great passage. There's so many places in the Bible that we can see the gospel summed up, but I really like this one. We see that um, the gospel is that Jesus gave himself up to death as a perfect sacrifice to pay for the sins of the world, which separate us from God. Uh, The gospel is that Jesus rose from the dead in victory and power over death, proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is who he claims he is. And Jesus claims to be God. See that Jesus is the only way to eternal life by what he has done and not by any of our own goodness or deserving. And that Jesus is the source of all love, the cause for our being, and the reason eternal life will even be worth living. That's the gospel. So this morning I want to look at three applications of the, three spheres of application of the gospel. One is that the gospel is central to a Christian faith. Two is that the gospel is central to the word, and three is that the gospel is central to our lives. The gospel is central to the Christian faith, to the word, and to life. Let's look at a gospel-centered faith. Um, did you know? Did you know that Jesus is real? Did you know that Jesus is a well-established historical figure? I know, I, know I, can, I encounter some people who don't believe in God, but also don't believe that Jesus even existed in the first place. And so I think it's worth making it very clear that Jesus, the existence of Jesus, is a historical fact. That not only the existence of the person of Jesus, but the fact that he was baptised by John the Baptist, and that he was publicly crucified, uh, have so much uh, history attesting to them, that they are considered by believers and non-believers alike as historical fact. These things happened. They're unavoidable. And in fact, because we know Jesus was crucified under the govern- governorship of Pontius Pilate, and we know when he ruled, and because we know Jesus was crucified on the Friday that was following the Passover, and not every Friday immediately follows a Passover, we know that Jesus either was crucified on, let me make sure I get this right, the 7th of April, 30 AD, or the 3rd of April, 33 AD. Almost certainly one of those two dates. It's remarkable that we have that much precision and specificity around an event that happened almost 2,000 years ago. And these are unavoidable truths. So everyone who cares to know should know that Jesus lived and died. But if that was the end of Jesus, if the crucifixion was the end of Jesus, it'd also be the end of his following. It'd also be the end of his church. If we look at the history of the spread of the gospel, the establishment of the early church, it all hinges on the conviction that Jesus not only died, but rose from the dead. No resurrection, no church. 
in Acts 10. Um, Acts is awesome. We looked at it earlier this year. Uh, great look at the early church bringing from essentially nothing to this huge movement. Anyway, Acts 10, uh, Peter is preaching to a bunch of Gentiles for the first time. And Gentiles are, are non-Jews. They don't have the history of the Old Testament pointing to a coming Messiah. And so this is why I'm picking that, because it's, it's, just, it's just Jesus, right? And he essentially says to them, you've heard about Jesus, and you know he did good and healed people, and we knew him personally. We ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. That's his pitch. And the Holy Spirit moved. And so many people believed. And it's great that we're talking about baptism because Peter's like, who can withhold water, find water somewhere, so that we can baptize these people? People get saved, they get baptized. It's this beautiful... Oh, no, I've lost my page. (laughs) Um, Anyway... So uh, I picked that example because it's, it's to the Gentiles, it's to the people who don't have this history, but anywhere and everywhere that the gospel is preached, and we see so many examples of the gospel preached, uh, the Acts is a great place to look for the gospel explained. Um, anywhere and everywhere that the gospel is preached, they preach a risen Jesus, every single time. Not just a, a risen Jesus, a risen Jesus they have witnessed or who the, we can point to people who've witnessed him. Later on, after the church is a bit more established, uh, Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. We have 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, essentially, you know Jesus rose from the dead. I've seen him. The other apostles have seen him. Hundreds of people have seen him, most of whom are still alive, so go talk to them if you want. You know Jesus rose from the dead. And then in verse 14, he says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. In verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sin. It all hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. Now, it's worth noting that Paul isn't writing this to convince them that Jesus rose from the dead. They already know this. He's writing to a church who's doubting that they will also rise from the dead one day. And so Paul's saying... Um, if you're not going to rise, if you don't believe you can rise from the dead, then that means Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and our whole everything hinges on that. But since you know just as well as I do that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead, you can be confident that you will as well. Paul hangs it all on the resurrection of Jesus. This is the one hill you can die on. The early church lived or died on whether people were convinced Jesus rose from the dead. And the fact that the church exists, the fact that the church thrived even then, even, the, even before these letters were written, right? Acts is a record of things that happened, but the church had thousands and thousands of people who knew and believed that Jesus rose from the dead without, because the Old Testament points to Jesus, but it doesn't explain Jesus. Okay, no, we'll get to that. <laughs> We'll get to that. But when we, when we look at that history, we look at the New Testament, which is pointing a little bit backwards to Jesus. These first thousands and thousands of people, their faith is built on the eyewitness testimony of Jesus, of the people who know Jesus and knew Jesus and knew people who knew Jesus and were willing to die for the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So if Jesus did not rise from the dead, there is a resurrection-shaped hole in church history. 
And not just church history, in ancient Roman history, in world history, there's a resurrection of Jesus-shaped hole in history if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. I'm telling you this because this needs to be the crux of our faith. Scripture tells us this needs to be the crux of your faith. That if this didn't happen, don't believe. And if this did, then do. And that's it. And so I've occasionally known Christians who have walked away from the faith. And in my limited experience, it has always been that their faith wasn't centered on the gospel. One friend said to me, I look at my non-Christian friends and see that they're good people too. He had missed or forgotten that the gospel isn't about goodness. The gospel is good, but it's not about our goodness. It's about God's goodness. Another said, this is probably almost word for word what he said, my philosophical understanding of God is incompatible with the incarnation. What he meant was, I have a belief, I believe in God. My reasoning points me to believing in God. I don't believe that he can become a man. I tried to challenge him on that. I can't remember. Like, it, I didn't change his mind, but my challenge was something to the effect of, but Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies, lived in the right place, at the right time, in the right way, with the right ancestry to be the Messiah. His teachings changed perceptions of morality for the rest of time. His miracles brought him wide recognition. He claimed to be God. He miraculously rose from the dead, started a flourishing, distinctively loving church under a religious regime that didn't want it, in an empire that didn't want it, in a universe that points to a creator who intended for us to be here for some kind of purpose, what else could he be? But God. But others, of course, find life in the gospel. They hear it shared or open the word and read it or have some kind of revelation and see, yes, this is life-saving. This is life-giving. This is the way, the truth, and the life. I can build my house here. I can build my life here on what Jesus did for me. I want to encourage you to do the same. My experience is that, is that I'm in community with people who do who do, do the same. Let's grow in doing the same. And if you're here and you're not a, not a Christian, I'm stoked you're here. I'd love to talk more about it. I'd love to talk more about maybe why uh, the universe points to an intentional creator. I'll talk more about that history. I get, I get too excited about that, so I'm actually going to move on. Um, but Jesus is real, and we can hang it all on this, this one thing he did. Not get caught up in... Um, how did Jonah survive three days in a fish? Or how old exactly is the earth? Or, gee, there's so many different ways that we can get caught up in the side stuff. The important thing is, Jesus unavoidably lived, died, lived again, changed all of history, claimed to be God. What are we going to do with that? When our faith hinges on what Jesus has done, it hinges on something true and unmovable. All right, so that's why the gospel is central to our faith. Um, the gospel is also central to the word. In Luke, we read that after Jesus' resurrection, 
uh, he explains scripture for his disciples. From verse 24 to 25, uh, Jesus said to his disciples, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then verse 27 says that, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. When he met with more of his disciples, in verse 44, this is the big one. He said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. There's the gospel right there. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. Jesus showed them, Jesus shows us that all of scripture points to him and what he does. And so as I said before, the reason I specifically chose um, in Acts, Peter preaching to the Gentiles is because they don't have this context. But we mostly see in Acts, uh, the Jews preach to because they do have this context. And so continually they point to all of Scripture. They point to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They point to Moses. They point to King David. And they say, look how Jesus fulfills all of this. So the gospel isn't just something we find in the New Testament or a good passage in Philippians and a good passage in Acts. The gospel is the whole word. That we find as we dig in that the whole thing points to Jesus who never gave in to Satan's temptation. Jesus, who is the way by which Abraham's family, God promised him blessing, an abundance of children, countless children that will be a blessing to the world. Jesus is the way by which Abraham's family is increased and blesses the world. Jesus is the lion of Judah, the Passover lamb, perfecter and fulfiller of God's covenant with Moses, the judge of judges, the king of kings from David's line, ransom for the exile, adopter of the orphan, Lord of Lords, wisdom personified. I almost preached on wisdom today. I was looking at Proverbs. I really like Proverbs. Last time I preached, I mentioned I used to do laps through Proverbs. I mentioned that to Josh, and he said, great, I'll send you this great uh, clip from um, Paul Tripp. And he sent that to me, and Paul Tripp starts with, the Proverbs point to Jesus. (laughs) You won't see the name Jesus in there at all, but Proverbs starts with wisdom personified. And who is wisdom personified but Jesus? I, got, I sort of like interrupted myself halfway through. But, so it points to Jesus. It, Jesus is in all of it. He's a suffering servant prophesied by Isaiah, miracle worker, teacher, the way, the truth, the life, shepherd of shepherds and servant of servants. He humbled himself to public execution in a mockery of his kingship. But he's the first fruit of the resurrection. Sent out his disciples by his spirit to make disciples of all nations. He defined goodness, equality, and human dignity. He lifts us up, invites everyone in, everyone and anyone who will accept him, and will one day be the perfect judge and will put an end to sorrow, to sin, and to death for all eternity. Old Testament to New, Genesis to Revelation, at all points to Jesus. What this means is that the gospel isn't just us doing laps through the New Testament or the first four books of the New Testament or Acts, but the gospel is the whole word. What this means is if we open up the word and don't unpack how it points to Jesus, we're missing something. If we don't unpack how Jesus perfected it or fulfilled it, we're missing something. 
And if our gathering and devotion to the word, being a gospel-centered church, should mean we are devoted to the whole word, even the weird stuff. Is Ecclesiastes depressing? Yes. Is Job shocking? Is Ezekiel hard to understand? Is Revelation kind of wild? Yes. But God's given them to us to point to Jesus, and we've got to use them. So a gospel-centered church doesn't neglect any of the word, but drinks in all of it. And it is how we do it. God willing, I hope that's been your experience of King's Cross. Um, Resources like, um, we can always share resources. I think our blog posts reflect it as well. Our podcasts reflect it. That uh, video from Paul Tripp reflects it, that Jesus is the center of everything. We have, um, next time we have our bookstore open, I I kind of thought it was going to be open this week, that's all right. Um, We have one Jesus Storybook Bible left. Now, it's it's not the whole Bible. I know we need more, right? It's, a beautiful illustration through, from Genesis to Revelation of how Jesus fulfills everything. Now, it's a storybook Bible. It's mainly for kids, but it's also surprisingly moving and impactful for adults. It's kind of like Bluey, if Bluey was about Jesus <laughs> instead of a cartoon dog. Years ago, when I was just out of high school, a friend of mine would turn up to ter- church once every couple of months, and I asked her uh, why, she, uh, why we didn't see her more often. And she said she used to go to church regularly, uh, but now she's heard it all. <laughs> so she just doesn't really need it anymore. Now, I don't think we ever get there. I don't. But it does kind of bring on the question... If the whole world is about one thing, and all of church is about this one thing, and we're basically just doing laps and laps over this one thing, and repeating this one thing over and over and over again, the gospel, why do we need to keep coming back to it? And so this brings us to point three, that the gospel is central to our lives. And this is what we really want to bring out at King's Cross. And this is what we see the authors of the Bible want to bring out. Um... Yeah. Can anyone tell me what WWJD stands for? What What would Jesus do? That's right. That's right. Um, And so um, in the 90s and 2000s, there were bracelets you can get. Maybe you can still get them that would have WWJD on them. And the idea is when you're not sure what to do, you look at your wrist and you go, what would Jesus do? I'll do what Jesus did. And this is great. This is... Um, has solid biblical foundation. In the New Testament, we are called to be imitators of God or to be imitators of Paul as he's an imitator of Jesus or to be imitators of others who are Christ-like as they imitate Jesus. Think about what Jesus would do. Whatever Jesus would do is probably the right thing to do. But it's also a little bit works-focused, isn't it? It's a little bit, I have a decision to make, what am I going to do in this situation? And if you are a more legalistic type, a how do I get the rules right type, if you are, or some, um, some perceive Christianity as trying to be good enough to get into heaven, and it's very much not that, but you can think that and have a WWJD band on, I think that's helping you get into heaven. I think that's helping you get right with God, right? So there's nothing wrong with the WWJD band. 
But I do want to propose an alternative. WDJD. Can anyone guess what that stands for? Awesome. What did Jesus do? And so it's not just for, I have to make a decision. It is for waking up. What did Jesus do? And so how I enjoy my brekkie. What did Jesus do? And so how I look at someone else and respond to someone else. What did Jesus do? Not just for me, but for them. Not because I deserve it. So it doesn't matter that they don't. <laughs> it doesn't matter if I think I deserve it a little bit more than they do. Because I don't. Jesus did it for them just as much as for me. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus do is why we stand and worship on a Sunday morning. We sing our hearts out. What did Jesus do is, is, is the question that we know the answer to that informs our worship, our relationships, our work, our rest. What did Jesus do? Well, he gave himself up to death for the forgiveness of our sins and rose to eternal life to which he invites us all. What did Jesus do? And this is the pattern we see in the New Testament. This is the motivation. This is the why. This is... um, I'm going to go quickly through examples here but because there are so many. And you can, all, you can open to almost any page in the New Testament, especially the epistles where there's lots of instruction, and you'll find what did Jesus do as the motivation for doing something. In 2 Corinthians 8 9, it's be generous because Jesus gave himself up and poured himself out. And though he was rich, God-level rich, he gave himself over to poverty for your riches. So be generous. Colossians 3.13 says to forgive because of what Jesus did for our forgiveness. Romans 15.7 says welcome one another as Jesus welcomed you in what he did. Ephesians 5.2, walk in love because Jesus. Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wife sacrificially as Jesus did for the church. 1 Corinthians 1.4-5 says to give thanks. Well, Paul's giving thanks. He's giving thanks for what he's seeing in the church because of what Jesus did. 1 John 2.12, build each other up, encourage each other. John says, I'm writing to you because of what Jesus did. Romans 5.11, rejoice in our sufferings because of what Jesus did. Always because of what Jesus has done. And there are so many more examples, really. I was like... It's really easy to find these examples. And then, I'd, and then I'd be doing other prep and bump into more examples. Then I'd adjust this list and be like, oh, that kind of, you know, add some breadth there and stuff. There's, there's so much. It's always because of what Jesus did. It's always because of the gospel. Even Jesus points to that as well. When he says, when he uh, had the parable of um, the guy who had a great debt and couldn't pay his debt and was going to be imprisoned and he's forgiven his debt. And then he goes to someone else who owes him a bunch of money and tries to get him in trouble for it. He says, give me your money or I'll throw you in prison. And uh, he gets in big trouble for it, basically. You've been forgiven a great debt. How can you not forgive every other debt towards you? Jesus forgave us this debt. Jesus is the forgiver. Jesus is the one who's done it all. How could you not? How could you not? So, gospel centrality means that everything points to Jesus, that every aspect of our lives should point to Jesus. This isn't some 
special goodness that we muster up in our cleverness. This isn't something that we just know so well that it just comes out of us uh, because we've read it, because we've memorized it. This isn't something we do by rote. This is something we do by practice, by the work of the Spirit in us, by repeating it, by massaging it into ourselves. Massage the gospel into yourself and into one another. Massage it in so that it permeates you. Okay, it's a bit weird, but... (laughs) It's very weird. The gospel should be in and through all of us. May the gospel be in our hands so that they are forgiving and for sharing and for lifting. May the gospel be in our mouths so that our words build up and teach and correct and confess and share in love. May the gospel be in our eyes so that we see Jesus in the poor, in the rejected, in the neglected, in the isolated, in the kind of annoying. May the gospel be in our ambitions so we pursue the growth of the kingdom rather than our own fame and success. May the gospel be so thoroughly subsumed in our minds that if we, over the course of time, for some terrible reason, lose our mental capacity, if we fall apart, the last coherent thought that we have is that Jesus is Lord. Joyfully, freely, thank you, Jesus is Lord. May it be deep in the cross-section of our bones. I don't know what it looks like for the gospel to be in our feet, to be in our knees, to be in our stomachs. And we don't have to figure it out. May the gospel be so permeated through us that whatever that means, that's what happens. And maybe one day someone will say to you, dang, you have, you really have a gospel stomach. Thank you for blessing me with that gospel stomach. I don't know how it's going to happen. Let's massage it into ourselves. And a good massage takes time, doesn't it? <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll leave that um, metaphor. <laughs> Philippians 2, 12 to 13. It's very soon after the passage that we read. Um, therefore, and the therefore is saying because of the gospel... Therefore, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work. This gospel, growing in gospel centrality, this making it part of who we are, making it central to who we are, is an ongoing effort. It's something that we work out, that we are intentional about. It's not something that just happens to us. But it's also not something that we're able to do entirely in our own effort. And so God is doing it in us. And if you don't desire it, desire to desire it. Because as Paul wrote here, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If you don't desire to work for God's good pleasure, God, please help me desire to work for your good pleasure. Help me desire to work for your good pleasure and then to work for your good pleasure. 
because it is good, because of what Jesus has done for me as an outpouring, as an expression of who I am in you, created to be a light of the gospel to people around me. We are created to be the gospel through and through. And so that's why we repeat it every week. That's why even though this week I didn't have like a specific thing and then, and then illustrate how the gospel points to it, but the last um, term we've looked at all these different applications, right, of how we love one another, but also why we love one another. And I hope you've seen, I think we've seen, from the conversations we've had, I think we've seen, there's because Jesus. It's because of what Jesus did do. All right. If you don't see the gospel on a Sunday, call us out on it. If you don't see the gospel preached, call us out on it. If in your gathering during the week with a brother and sister in Christ and you open the Bible and you don't see the gospel, or you reflect on the discussion you had and it was good and it was interesting, but the gospel didn't somehow come out of it, it's worth calling each other out on it. The gospel is central. It's what we're made for. Central to our faith. Don't forget that it is the rock on which our faith is built. Essential to the whole word. All of God-breathed scripture points to this fact that Jesus died for our sins and rose again and reigns. And essential to our lives. And the more it is central to our lives, the more we see it worked out in our lives. The more we see God glorified in our lives. The more what would Jesus do just happens. So let's encourage each other in that going forward. I'll invite Mark in a second to lead us into communion. What a great opportunity to think about, to reflect on what Jesus did. But I'd like to pray for us first, that God helps us in this, because it is God who is working in us to will and to work. Let's pray. Let's pray.